If you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 19. Um, what's printed in your bulletin is verses 11 through 21. And we're going to look at, uh, we're going to start in verse 10. So 10 through 21, if you've got a Bible. Uh, so if you look around our culture today, our society today, I think you will see a lot of people who suppose that they know what the church is about. You see a lot of people who presume to know, anyway, what the church is about. They have strong opinions about the church. Uh, they have strong opinions. They, they think they understand what the church's message is. Often these opinions about the church are really rather fairly derived from the ways that they see the church acting or from the things that they hear the church proclaiming. Uh, the American church has publicly engaged in various cultural battles, which uh, I think unfortunately too often boil down to uh, the hypocritical condemnation of immorality, the immorality of other people. Uh, the church condemns that and it's hypocritical because we too uh, commit sins. And that's visible. So those are the kinds of things that the that our neighbors have often seen and they've heard from the church, which factor strongly into their opinions about us. So in many ways, then, people who think they know what the church really is about can be quite surprised when they hear the gospel faithfully proclaimed. They can be quite surprised when they see Christians actually living in step with the gospel, when they encounter the church sort of being about what it really is about properly and what it should be about. That surprise, I think, can be expressed like this. I've heard this uh, expressed this way. Uh, people who think they know what the church really is about and they hear the gospel clearly proclaimed and they see Christians living in step with the gospel express their surprise and they say, you sure talk about Jesus more than I expected. <laughs> they expected something else. They didn't expect us to talk about Jesus so much. But that's what the church really is about. The church is about Jesus. We don't want to just fight about moral behavior. We want to talk about who Jesus is. We want to talk about what Jesus has said and done, what Jesus is like. We want to talk about how Jesus rolls. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our testimony. Jesus is our gospel. He's our good news. If the church is going to follow Jesus into his battle and not just fight the battles that a lot of times we get sucked into fighting in the world, but if we're going to follow Jesus into his battle in the world, if we're going to participate in what we could call his holy war, and then share in his victory, that looks like faithfully proclaiming Jesus and living in step with Jesus. So let's talk about what that means. That's, uh, that's what we'll talk about from the scripture this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read it. Father, in your scriptures, we learn so much about you and about your ways, especially as your scriptures teach us about Jesus, your son. So please, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Give us new hearts to trust you and change us in every way into the likeness of Christ, our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Revelation 19, starting in verse 10. I fell down at the angel's feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule or shepherd them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at first this scene uh, appears to be pretty macabre, right? It's uh, One imagines seeing a battlefield stained with blood, the sky, the red sky reflecting the field, uh, hearing the horrific cries of the dying. <clears throat> and as with so much of the book of Revelation, it's easy to think that this language is describing uh, an ultimate cosmic final battle between the armies of the Lord and the forces of darkness coming at the end of history. But Revelation often uses vivid language and imagery this way. The Bible does that uh, a lot. Uh, Revelation uses it this way to describe things that didn't bring the whole world to an end. As Peter Lightheart is a... Uh, theologian and commentator on this um, book, he likes to say, and I think it says it really well, Revelation, uh, most of Revelation is about the end of a world. It's not about the end of the world, most of it. Or it's like the REM song goes, it's the end of the world as we know it. As we know it being the operative term. Right, so this was the end of the world as we've considered throughout the the book. the end of the world for unbelieving Israel and their demonic alliance with the Roman Empire against the church. It was the end of that world. Most of the vivid apocalyptic literature in the Bible is like this, using the strongest language possible, cosmic ultimate language to describe events that would take place in the history of Israel, to describe events that would take place in the life of Jesus, to describe events that would take place during the times of the apostles in the early church. Even though we've been reading Revelation uh, this, this way throughout our series, it's still easy for us to misunderstand such language because it's very powerful language. And it's, it's good to repeat and remember that this book is full of symbols. Jesus coming on a white horse is symbolic. Jesus having eyes on fire is symbolic. Jesus having a robe dipped in blood is symbolic. 
Jesus having a sword in his mouth is symbolic. Birds eating the flesh of Jesus' enemies is symbolic. In fact, the whole picture of a violent physical battle is symbolic, and it signifies a reality that has taken place in the history of the world. So N.T. Wright uh, says that the, the military imagery is just that, imagery. It's imagery. This passage is a picture of a kind of battle. It's a picture of the victory of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the church advances in a world that stands against Jesus. As the church advances in the world that's full of enmity against Jesus and his people. Jesus has been described uh, with powerful language like this at points throughout the book. And here it's like John is gathering up all those descriptions. Like every phrase is comes from some other place in Revelation. Uh, he's gathering up all the descriptions of Jesus into this one ultimate overwhelming picture. He's on the white horse, which we see in chapter 6, signifying the speed and power of the conquering king as he moves through the world. His flaming eyes, chapter 1, signify the piercing, purifying vision of the Holy Spirit. He knows everything that the Spirit knows. His many diadems signify the beauty of his authority, and they far outmatch the, the numbered counterfeits of the dragon and the beast that you see in chapters 12 and 13. His word is the sharp sword in his mouth, you see in chapters 1 and 2, that cuts down his enemies, and it's the scalpel that performs spiritual surgery. And Jesus is not alone, but he's followed by the armies of heaven, clothed in their pure white linen, riding their own white horses, looking like Jesus, participating in the Lord's battle and sharing in the Lord's victory. But it's not much of a battle, really, because it's over before it begins. It's kind of an anticlimactic final cosmic battle that we find here, um, if it were a final cosmic battle. The angel standing in the sun calls the birds to prepare for cleanup even before the enemies of Christ take the field of battle. They haven't even shown up yet in their enmity against God. And the angel says birds get ready to, to do the mop-up operations here. Clean up. The, the victory of Jesus and the victory of his people is assured. It's inevitable. It's ordained. So verse 19, the enemy army is, is gathered to make war against Jesus and his people. They're ready for a fight, but then there's no description of a fight, and we don't see a battlefield drenched with blood. We don't hear the cries of the dying verse 20, the main antagonists, what you would think are the most powerful of the enemies, they're easily overpowered and, and condemned. Right? The, the beast and the false prophet, which through this book we've understood to mean it's the Roman state authorities and the Jewish religious authorities in their infernal team-up against Jesus and the church, they are captured and sent to the lake of fire. While, verse 21, the rest are slain by the sword of Jesus' mouth. They're slain by his word. They have a different fate. Jesus speaks a word, and his enemies fall. So, in John 18, in the Gospel, John uh, recorded something like this happening, actually very literally, in the night when Jesus was betrayed. And when he was arrested, his enemies came with weapons. They came to the field of battle 
They were prepared for a fight, an actual physical battle. And Jesus merely identified himself with the words, I am. They asked for Jesus. He said, I'm the one you're looking for. I am. And the band of soldiers fell to the ground, stunned, unable to move against him. And Jesus then demonstrated his true power. It wasn't just to to paralyze his enemies. His true power was to offer himself up to death in exchange for his disciples' freedom. He literally said, Take me, let them go. Take me to the cross, let my disciples live. He allowed his enemies to take him into custody and then ultimately to the cross. That was the power of the true King of Kings and the true Lord of Lords. His power is his self-sacrificial power. That's the true power of Jesus as the King. And that's the word of the gospel. That's, that's the sword coming out of his mouth. That's the kind of message that the church has to proclaim. We have to proclaim that message. Who Jesus is, what he's like, what he's done for us. And we proclaim his kind of kingship. And his kind of kingship is the power that we have to exercise. It's the power to which the church has to conform. If we're going to live in step with the gospel. God's plan for humanity from before the beginning, has been to share with us his own power, to invite us even to his own throne, to sit on his own seat, and to exercise his own power, to make us kings. That's been his plan from from the beginning, to make us kings, sharing and reflecting his own authority in the world. By his grace, in Jesus Christ, God has made us kings and lords in his image which means that the title that we see in verse 16 as applied to Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it's, it's like saying Jesus is the king who makes kings. It's like saying he's the king of those who rule together with him. He's the king of those who exercise power like his. He's the king of gospel believers and gospel proclaimers He's the king of martyrs. Jesus is the king and the Lord who makes his people to be kings and lords alongside of himself, kings and lords like himself. Not a a king and a lord fundamentally different from what we've seen of his kingship and lordship. He's the king and the Lord who grants that his people would rule and reign together with him with an authority like his, the authority of Christ-centered, self-sacrificial love. So for us to do battle, for us to do battle with the enemies of Christ in the world, doesn't mean using physical force. That's not what it meant for Jesus. For us to do battle with the enemies of Christ in the world doesn't mean fighting over worldly power and trying to grab as much of it as we can to influence others. It doesn't mean condemning others for their immorality. For us to do battle with the enemies of Christ in the world does not mean condemning others for their immorality over moral behavior, getting into fights and arguments about that. For us to do battle means proclaiming the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord, and it means living in step with that gospel in the Lord's power and in his authority. And that will mean bearing witness to him in ways that cost us that ultimately could cost us our lives. When Jesus rides into battle, here in our passage, his robe is already dipped in blood. 
He doesn't show up and hack down his enemies and their blood spatter upon his robes. He's already come to the field dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? Whose blood is that? Some think it's the blood of his enemies. Uh, Some think it's his own blood. But the best understanding of the picture in the overall context of the book is that it's the blood of his people. It's the blood of his faithful saints. It's the blood of the martyrs. It's the blood of his beloved people who share his authority, the authority of self-sacrificial love, the willingness to lay down our lives just as the Lord himself has laid down his life. Again, that's the overall point of the book of Revelation. Jesus is making his people to look like himself. Jesus is sharing his life with us. Jesus is sharing his victory, the victory of his faithfulness. He's the faithful and true one, and he's sharing that with his faithful and true people. Jesus is glorified when his people become like him. That's what Revelation is about. Jesus is glorified when we become like him. And when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, and we live in step with him, then the battle's already over. And the victory is won, and the forces of evil are beaten. And in the course of history, that's meant good news, even for the enemies of Christ, even for the enemies of his people. So let's remember again that this passage is full of symbolic language. When the birds eat the flesh of the enemy armies, that's symbolic. If John was trying to say that the enemies of Christ were all destroyed, they were all killed, they were all condemned to eternal torment in hell, he would have said that they share the same fate as the beast and the false prophet who were thrown alive into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the place of final eternal torment. The lake of fire is the place where the wicked are condemned ultimately. But John doesn't consign all the enemies of Christ to that fate. He says... Their flesh is consumed by birds. He emphasizes that using the word flesh uh, more times than he needs to (laughs) in this passage. Six times overall. Verse 18, the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 21, the birds were gorged with their flesh. So, um, if you're familiar with the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes frequently about the flesh. As that that sinful aspect of our humanity that's in the old Adam, that's apart from Christ, that resists and rejects Christ. And, uh, And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying no one can inherit the kingdom of God. But if people are going to inherit the kingdom of God, if people are going to be saved, if the enemies of Christ are going to convert and join him, which has happened billions of times in the history of the world, it means the destruction of their flesh. And that's the victory of Christ and the victory of his people. The army of those who proclaim the gospel with their lips and with their lives. The army of the white-robed martyrs, as we've prayed in our prayers of the people. Those who follow Jesus, who exercise an authority like his. So the victory is the eternal destruction of demonic enemies in the lake of fire and the destruction of the flesh of earthly enemies. Which means 
those enemies cease to rage against Jesus as enemies. It means the salvation of his enemies. The power of Jesus to win over his enemies like this, the way that he does, by laying down his life for them, by causing his people to do the same, that power is unstoppable. He allowed his enemies to take his life, and his kingly robe here shows that he allows his enemies even to take the lives of his people so that, so that they share in his kingship, in his rule. And this king, this kingdom, speeds over all the earth like riders, like an army on white horses, and even the gates of hell cannot stop it from advancing. Story after story from the history of the church for thousands of years in every part of the world, parts of the world that are very hostile to God and to his Christ and to the church, Story after story testifies to the victory of the king of kings, the king of martyrs. When vicious enemies like wolves cut down the faithful, they themselves are cut to the heart, their flesh is pierced by the sword of Christ's word, and they turn to the true Lord in repentance and faith when they witness the sufferings of those who live in step with the gospel. Jesus gives us the honor of participating in that battle and in sharing in that victory. Does that seem like an honor to you? Does that seem like a gift of his grace to you? Does that sound like the kind of king you want to follow? Are you interested in reigning together with this king of kings? That's the question. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're the one who grants us boldness to proclaim your son, Jesus, as Lord. You're the one who grants that we would live in step with him, with courage in this world, facing his enemies and ours with love. We pray that you would grant this to us, that this testimony of Jesus would be all our holy war and our certain victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.